Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Aaron Wilde joins us today. He is this year's winner of the Marjorie Sweeting Dissertation Prize, an annually awarded prize for the best undergraduate geomorphological dissertation undertaken at a UK university. Hi Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. There's a couple of key terms and difficult words, so Aaron, can you explain to us the three terms that people might not understand? Yeah, of course. First of all, I think hypsometry is, is probably one of the, the most um, sort of confusing terms. So hypsometry is the distribution of topography in a basin or region, and that is a reflection of the tectonic and um, denudational processes that occur in that region. I think it's also important to define geomorphology as well, and that is, is the study of the physical features of the surface of the Earth or any other planet for that matter, and their relation to its uh, geological structures. And that sort of feeds in nicely to uh, geomorphic evolution, which is the, the concept of how landscapes undergo changes in relief and hypsometry through time. Um, and that can be due to a, a combination of uh, one or more processes, um, including uplift, erosion, uh, subsidence, deposition or, or volcanism. Finally, I think equilibrium uh, line altitude should be defined and that is the, the elevation uh, at which the boundary between the accumulation zone and the ablation zone um, occurs on a glacier. Right, so we're talking about glaciated landscapes? Yes, in this case, yes, which are uh, mountain ranges that are occupied by glaciers. And can you tell us a bit more about which university you just graduated from? Yeah, so that was the, the University of Sheffield. Um, and I did my dissertation under the supervision of uh, Professor Ed Rhodes. And I also consulted um, Dr. Daryl Swift uh, on the project as well. Um, in the abstract, you talked of the glacial buzzsaw. Are you trying to find evidence in support of that? term or are you trying to disprove it as a primary control? One of the aims of uh, the study was to examine the, the manner in which glacial buzzsaw denudation uh, limits topographic growth um, and how this is actually reflected by the topography in its current stage of geomorphic evolution. So the study did uh, set out to find evidence that supports the glacial buzzsaw as, as a primary uh, control in glacial environments, which is what has been previously argued uh, in the literature. And where were you doing this? Where was your study area? Um, so there was three uh, study areas uh, in my dissertation, and, and they were uh, the Ar Araki uh, Mount Cook Range, which is the central uh, section of the Southern Alps in New Zealand. The second study site was the Cumbu Range, which is among the central uh, High Himalaya, uh, which are in both Nepal and Tibet. And the third uh, site was in the Northwestern Alps, which are the northwestern section of the European Alps, uh, which fall in France, uh, Switzerland and Italy. So New Zealand, Nepal, Tibet and the Alps. Yeah. Did you find differences in the rates of erosion in these different mountain ranges? Was there, were there different results? In the study, I actually considered erosion as, as covering all types of erosion. So that's including fluvial, glacial, uh, diffusive processes and hill slope processes. Um, and that's mainly because the, the data... Are used uh, for the erosion rates, which was obtained from secondary sources, so erosion rates that had been 
measured by other researchers. They all showed different rates, and that was partly to fit with the hypotheses of the study in that each study site would have a different erosion rate. And is it too simplistic to ask the question, which one has the, the worst erosion rates out of those three mountain ranges? The lowest was the Northwestern Alps. So the Northwestern Alps has quite a low erosion rate of around one millimetre or 0.9 millimetres per year, but has higher uplift rates uh, respective to that. Can you explain the inclusion of hypsometric curves? Uh, what did this allow you to prove in your dissertation? The hypsometric curves are basically a method that enables the, the visualisation of the hypsometry of a, of a given basin or, or region. And they're, they're a histogram that relates the proportional surface area in that region to its elevation. And, and that can be split up into equal elevation bin intervals of about 100 or 200 metres, depending on how large you'd like them to be. And you can imagine that as sort of a, a topographic map if you were going hiking, let's say, and you're looking at the contour intervals on that. And the reason for this was because hypsometric curves are unscaled parameters and, and you can use them in their relative value rather than sort of their absolute. It allows you to compare the hypsometry of study areas irrespective of their true scale, allowing you to look at the, uh, the physical process comparisons between the regions. You don't often hear these terms like hypsometric and hypsometry. Um, why do you think that is? I'd say from, from my experience, hypsometry is something that isn't covered in great detail, if not at all in, in A-level, uh, or even during my undergraduate degree, even though it seems something that's sort of self-explanatory in a way. It's, it's sort of just the, the shape of topography in, in any area. And it can also be quite a difficult method to, to sort of conceptualise and visualise, which may be due to why you don't see it at lower levels of, of geographical research. And I certainly struggled when first sort of understanding the concept as a whole. But I'd say what's important to, to note is that once you understand sort of the processes that operate in, in altering a region's hypsometry, um, so that's uplift and erosion mainly, you can sort of better understand the, the hypsometry as a concept and how it actually changes and evolves through time. Did you study it yourself at A-level and at school, or was this something that you chose to do as an undergrad um, for the first it, it time? It was mentioned, I think, once or twice in my final year of study, and it was mainly the glacial buzzsaw sort of hypothesis that brought me into it, because I'm interested in glaciology myself. And once I heard about that, I thought I'd want to sort of read into this a bit more, and it, it just took me on a sort of a long, deep rabbit hole through that <laughs> that sort of literature, really. So brilliant! That that's the way it should be. Yeah, sure. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned in your thesis about exhumation. What's the difference between exhumation and erosion? In my study, I used the definitions which were outlined by uh, England and Molnar in, I think it was 1990. So there has been quite a lot of confusion when actually measuring exhumation and erosion rates in given areas. There's a lot of confusion in the literature between the actual definitions. So this study by England and Molnar sort of aimed at uh, defining these principles as well as uplift so that you know that confusion could be removed from the literature. Um, so in this case um, they defined exhumation as the displacement of a package of rocks with respect to the earth's surface um, whereas erosion was or is sorry the removal of material from the earth's surface with respect to the earth's surface. But where it gets confusing is <laughs> the exhumation rate and the erosion rate are technically the same so if you were to measure both they would yield the same result which is where the confusion lies um, but the mechanisms are different so in a way you are measuring the same thing but 
what's important to, to consider is that the mechanisms that cause both eczematation and erosion are completely separate, more or less. Right. So from my teaching days, I remember students often struggled with the start of an investigation. Um, could you explain how you honed in on your three hypotheses? How did you start your project? You've mentioned the glacial buzzsaw already. Yeah. So when discussing the, the aim and hypothesis of the study with my supervisor, we, we came to realise that in order to investigate the differences in hypsometry, we'd need uh, three mountain ranges that can be classified into one of each of the three iterations that are in varying stages of topographic or, or geomorphic evolution, uh, which was determined by the differences in their erosion and uplift rates. And this was along what what we followed was, was Hack's scheme, which was proposed in, in 1976. But as far as formulating hypotheses goes in research, I, I think that you have to bear in mind or consider the aim of your study first when actually writing the hypotheses because that they are what supplements the study aim. They are what helps you sort of achieve the hypotheses or even disprove them, which obviously is what gets you results. Can you share with us uh, any data collection strategies, perhaps in regards to frequency or timing or your use of secondary data to help students? My project was predominantly a remote sensing and GIS project. So I used a combination of digital elevation models, which are files that you can import into a geographic uh, information system that hold elevation data, and they allow you to, to look at the elevation in a, in a certain area. And I also used satellite imagery, and that was to, to calculate the, the regional equilibrium line altitudes for, for all three of my study sites, as well as measuring the hypsometric uh, distributions of each st uh, study site and their eight sub-areas. And then th this is what actually enabled me to convert those uh, data that was, that was extracted from both the satellite imagery and the digital elevation models to build the, the hypsometric curves and to calculate the hypsometric uh, integrals as well. But I think a, a more important thing would be uh, the secondary data that's, or the secondary data sources that are used in, in research. And especially for my project, which the whole premise was based on the secondary data that I used to, to characterise my three study sites. So that comprised of uh, erosion and uplift rate uh, data, which was sourced from existing uh, published literature. And I also used uh, some glacial elevation values for the glaciers in my study regions, which was sourced from uh, the World Glacier Inventory Database. And that was to sort of cross-check the glacier equi equilibrium line altitudes uh, and median elevations that I was using or calculating uh, using the remote sensing data. On top of all that, were there any ethical considerations that you had to keep in mind when you're in the mountain ranges? So with regards to um, the secondary sources uh, that I used in my study, which include the digital elevation models and satellite images, as I, as I mentioned before, the erosion and, and uplift data uh, and the World Glacier Inventory and World Glacier Monitoring Service data all had to be cited correctly in order to, to credit the original authors uh, as it is their work that I was using. Um, and you have to be very clear when you are using other people's work in research that you aren't plagiarising or taking credit for something that you didn't actually do. And on a separate note, studies in general that involve the collection and use of personal uh, and confidential information would have to take uh, ethical considerations into account. Um, however, for my project, that wasn't uh, necessarily relevant. And then talking about um, the limitations of, of my study, I'd say that the, the 
very definition of uh, the, the hypsometric curve, which attempts to sort of describe the hypsometry of, of a region, results in, a small, in, in the smaller scale features and landforms, which are due to uh, finer scale processes being lost among the much larger population of elevations uh, in regions larger than a single drainage basin. And this is partly due to the, the resolution of the digital elevation models, which dictates the, the elevation bin size, which I, I used, a, I think, at a 100-metre uh, elevation bin size. But the, the larger you increase that, the lower the resolution of the hip symmetric curve will be, uh, and the more smoothed out the terrain will be. So it's not necessarily as res- representative of the true smaller you know, landforms and, and undulations in, in the topography. However, for, for the purposes of my study, it, well, it was necessary uh, or a necessary step in order to truly understand uh, the effects of erosion and uplift on a scale that would influence the stage of geomorphic evolution for the, those regions. And what were your conclusions, Aaron, from your dissertation? On the whole, the, the hypsometry of the northwestern Alps was actually found to be very similar to the hypsometry of the Araki Mount Cut Range. Uh, and that is despite the erosion rates being less than uh, uplift rates in the northwestern Alps. And this is uh, evidenced by the, the hypsometric distributions uh, in the hypsometric curves. So this didn't actually support the, the hypothesis of uh, my study, which means that my findings actually disagree with Strahler and Amori's ideas of hypsometric curves and landscape evolution, as, like I said, the hypsometry of the northwestern Alps represents an early developing or declining stage uh, of geomorphic evolution rather than a late developing stage uh, of geomorphic evolution that was set out by Amorium that was hypothesized by myself in the first place. To, to further that, the Araki Mount Cut Range and the Northwestern Alps do also both show evidence of glacial buzzsaw uh, denudation. Um, and this was supported by six out of the eight sub-areas in both regions um, lying within the 1,500-metre threshold above the glacial ELA. And despite that, the, the Kumbu range didn't show this relationship, so only one of the, the sub-areas actually fell within that 1,500-metre threshold above the ELA, which was, was quite a, a surprise, really, because the erosion rates are so high in the Himalaya, I think around 5 millimetres um, as well as the, the uplift rates as well. You would expect for the maximum elevations to be lower than, than they actually were with respect to the, to the glacial ELA. But despite that, those findings actually don't support what, what was proposed by Eggholm et al. Uh, in 2009. And they did a global survey of, of the um, 1,500 metre threshold above the ELA. And they, they were the ones that really pushed forward with this idea that glaciers have the erosive power of, of limiting uh, maximum elevations down to you know, only 1,500 metres above the, the ELA. Why do you think it's important for geographers to develop their data skills? I, I think it's, it's a very um, important skill to develop early on in your geographical career, if, if that is the career you want to pursue. In ud- undergraduate, so when you do your geography or geology or environmental science degree, you are sort of expected to have a, a base level understanding of data analysis and uh, data collection skills. Um, and even using things like uh, GIS and uh, remote sensing and, and fieldwork techniques, th- these are all key uh, data collection methods. 
So just having that very basic understanding from either GCSE or A-level can really sort of help uh, with the initial um, sort of developments of, of a project, like a dissertation in, in your final year of study or, or whether you do smaller projects earlier on in your uh, undergraduate degree. Um, and, and these are skills that you'll, you'll develop more and more and more throughout your degree and you, you may use further on or if you go into the research, you, you definitely will need them further on in your career. Do you think these skills have relevance to other careers beyond academia? Yeah, definitely. I'd say a lot of the skills acquired um, in geographical studies are very transferable to, to careers outside of the, the academic world. And, and that can include you know, data analysis or critical thinking um, and evaluative skills. And the, these would be very useful in, in careers uh, like teaching or, or geospatial analysis, uh, which is an ever-growing field of work um, due to our reliance on applications such as uh, Google Maps, which you know, most people use every day in the modern day, and even fields in you know, environmental science, so flood prevention or the Met Office, uh, would uh, ask for you to have uh, an understanding of, of GIS for spatial analysis or potentially modelling skills, uh, so writing you know, scripted code to, to look at weather patterns and things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a degree or a field of work where the skills can be massively transferable and used outside of just the geographical domain. It's worth mentioning that the Society has undertaken a major project, kindly funded by the Nuffield Foundation, called Data Skills in Geography. More information can be found at www.rgs.org slash data skills. Could we finish um, by hearing a bit about um, where you're going in life, what career path you're on? You mentioned as we came in that you're doing a master's. Uh, yeah, so I'm still at Sheffield doing a Perlin Alpine Change Research Master's, which is looking at high latitude and high altitude glaciation. Uh, so that includes glaciers, ice sheets, uh, and all the processes uh, revolving around that. Um, and, and after this, I, I hope to to apply for a PhD um, and pursue my sort of career aspirations of of uh, doing a research led role in, in either geomorphology or, or glaciology. Well, good luck to you and thank you for coming in today. Great. Thank you. And thank you again for having me. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.